but there was a type of friendship that was sort of like formed, forged in the crucible of the work that uh, we were doing in sort of the early 90s that I think, for me at least, left a lasting impression. Uh, we were vulnerable. Uh, we were changing as humans. We were experiencing things, sort of like our first adult experiences. And, and all those things were very, um, for me, um, impactful. And I think that, that laid that foundation for this friendship to continue to know. Welcome to season two of the 3 to 10 Project. Two white, cisgender males who have been friends for over 25 years, exploring race, gender, and education by talking through the intersection of our identities with our experience, as well as what we are reading, listening to, and thinking about. And most importantly, considering how to show up moving forward. The 3 to 10 project reflects our long-term commitment, 3 to 10 years, of working together to build community and culture, inspired by author Resma Menicum. You can learn more about Resma and find a link to the podcast that inspired us on our website. I'm Mark. I'm Reed. This season, we're framing each episode around an essential question. Sometimes we may uncover answers, Usually, we'll end up with even more questions. And as we move to hold ourselves accountable, we'll wrap up every discussion by setting specific intentions for action. How will we be moved to act, and what will we do? This is Season 2, Episode 7, What Should Anti-Racism Look Like for White Men? Recorded March 13th, 2022. In this episode, we're joined by our longtime friend Jason, first time another white guy has been on the podcast. Yes, it's about time. Good afternoon, Mark. Hey, Reed. How are you? I'm okay. It's been a busy weekend already, um, but I'm good and it's always good to hear you. I'm excited for this call. Yeah, it's going to be a little bit different. Before we dive into the details of that, let's just, as always, kind of recap where we've come. It's been like three weeks since we talked before, and uh, we made some commitments because we're always discussing this issue of what does it mean to actually move to action? So mm -hmm. just as a, as a reminder, you know, we had that, what I thought was a really interesting conversation about racial affinity groups, and I said I was going to connect with another group that I'm in that's all white males yeah, and try to get at a little bit about what are we actually trying to accomplish with that group? What's the mm -hmm. point of it? Mm -hmm. And maybe um, are we pushing ourselves enough to make that space into a learning space? So I actually brought it up at our last meeting and the group decided to actually table the conversation mm -hmm. until our next one so that we could structure it and frame it in a little more of a serious way, which I thought was a good decision. Actually, one of the other members said, let me jump in. I'd love to facilitate that. And so that's going to be the topic of our next conversation. So I feel good about that. I mean, the conversation hasn't happened yet, but I'm going to be interested to see 
how much I might push that group or what they might say in response to why we're coming together and how that's, you know, again, what the purpose of it is. And what's the topic of the conversation going to be exactly? Well, it's really like, why are we in a racial affinity group, a white male group? Mm -hmm. And what are we hoping to achieve by by that, Mm -hmm. with that? Um, Mm Because I feel like that group has been meeting for a while and maybe it's become a sort of a social hour. And, a, and uh, I'll be curious to hear whether that idea of like discomfort comes up. Yeah, and- that's, that's a point I'm going to raise. How much is discomfort a necessary element in growth, especially, or maybe around issues of race or maybe around issues of sexism? Right. How about you? Well, you know, I rely on you to remind me what I uh, was fo- supposed to be focused on. Um, you know, I set an intention, but my memory does not hold that. Do you remember? <laughs> well, my know, that's, my uh, notes remember. Um, yeah, your notes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there were two things coming off. One was your continued commitment to organization where you've really been looking at dynamics of power and sort of how you're showing up in that organization in that way with regards to the dynamics. I think there's only five of you there that you're interacting with. And then the other had to do with your work with the school committee and how to push the school committee a little bit more towards significant work in anti-racism. Yeah. Yeah. So I think both of those uh, have been on my mind. We did a lot of work this past week as a, a leadership team in my work environment which included some conversations about power, even like about compensation uh, for individuals and so on. And it was really productive. I feel like we've made real progress there and I'm always kind of monitoring myself and or kind of, and, and the group and just kind of like, where's power showing up? Where's my power showing up? And uh, just bring awareness. And I think that's been working out well, individually and collectively. I will say one thing that came up for me just as a learning edge that um, I'm going to, we're going to spend some time collectively on, and I'll probably do some uh, thinking and reading individually is um, the difference between BIPOC and Black, Latinx, and Indigenous. And um, we've, we're kind of working through some decisions around um, when and how we use the term BIPOC, especially as we directly connected to um, some metrics that we have of different populations that our organization works with and so on. And whether we'd actually say, no, we're not saying BIPOC, we're saying Black, Latinx, and Indigenous uh, people. So don't want to get deep into that. It's just something I would just raise as like, huh, like there's some learning to do here about even how this language is used. And some real like implications for like why one versus the other in a very pragmatic way when we make some decisions as an organization. So, um, and then in terms of school committee, we were supposed to have a DEI meeting, it got canceled, um, but there's one coming up. And I think I'm gonna continue to use the DEI committee as a place to kind of build momentum um, and then figure out how to bring that work and support that work into the larger committee um, in a thoughtful way, not not a way just to make a fuss, but actually to make change. Yeah. 
you know, wouldn't be an episode of this if I didn't bring up Code Switch podcast, but I should uh-huh. send you, I don't know if you listened to, there's one probably a year ago that was talking about the use of BIPOC and a really oh, interesting okay. um, episode just where they were talking about language use and mm-hmm. the sort of, what are the implications of all kinds of different terms you might use? And, and, mm-hmm. and, and what, more importantly, maybe what are the situations or circumstances in which you are thoughtful about what terms you're using? So mm-hmm. if you want, I'll dig that up for you. And yeah. Probably send it along. Yeah. Yeah. All right. All right. So moving from those actions, uh, we are excited. You know, it's funny. I think, I don't know how many episodes we're in. We're 20 some episodes in here. This is our first episode. Where we're actually going to engage with another white guy feels like a milestone opportunity. So we are not alone. Our, our good friend Jason is with us. Hey, Jason, how are you? I'm doing well. How are you all? <laughs> we are so excited to have you here. And there's a bunch of stuff we're going to talk about. Um, sure. But you are a fitting first guest for us. And so actually, rather than me talking, why don't you tell us when did you meet us and how did that happen? <laughs> let's 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 unpack the story. A little sure, bit. absolutely. Um, and by the way, I, you know, to be maybe a little harsh, like in what situation would people be less likely to want to listen to two white guys would be probably when there's three. So uh, <laughs> if there's any like drop off of your listenership, that's actually a word. Uh, I apologize beforehand. So um, I met Reed and Mark in 1994. All three of us were part of Teach for America uh, in the New Jersey Corps. Um, and we met and, and I think that, you know, formative and also kind of traumatic experience, um, uh, all the way back then, I think for me really forged a lifelong friendship. Uh, and, um, and also I think it was just a group of people, um, that just to this day have impressed me, uh, are impressive people. Uh, do, who are doing impressive things, and um, and and I'm not actually surprised that I'm still friends with with you all. But but why do you think we are? So why has that? Why has our connection endured over basically 28 years? Yeah, it's actually a great question because I, you know I, we're all much older now, and I'm thinking like, where are my friends, and who are my friends? And, and when did I forge sort of like deep friendships? And it's not like I don't have friends now or here in Atlanta, I've been in Atlanta for 16 years, but there was a type of friendship that was sort of like formed, forged in the crucible of the work that uh, we were doing in sort of the early nineties that I think for me at least left a lasting impression. Uh, we were vulnerable, uh, we were changing as humans, we were experiencing things sort of like our first adult experiences. And, and all those things were very, um, for me, um, impactful. And I think that that laid that foundation for this friendship to continue to know. I really appreciated what you shared and how you shared that, Jason, and like, especially this idea of vulnerability. Um, yeah, like, and not every, you know, we didn't have to be vulnerable, but I think by nature, um, we were. And I don't know if you experienced this, but it kind of connects to the vulnerability, at least I know for me, those kind of two years was the first time I experienced failure 
at a very significant level. Like, of course, not everything in my life had gone the way I, I wanted it to in every moment. Mm-hmm. But those two years, it was beyond anything I'd experienced in terms of failure on a very visceral way, a very like real way, and on a very like all, all the time. Like it like wasn't like, oh, that didn't go well, and then things were okay for a while. It was like that didn't go well, then that didn't go well, and that yeah. didn't go well. And I just feel like maybe that we were vulnerable had vulnerability going through real failure and not like judging, but trying to support each other. And I, I think that, yeah, I wonder how that lands with you. Yeah. I, 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 that resonates with me as well. And I think the idea of, of failure, I mean, you you talk to most first year teachers and they talk about how it was hard and it was like, to this day, I was like, I, I can't think of a worse teacher <laughs> my uh-huh. first year than, right. than, uh, than myself and maybe um, Mark and Reed. Um, <laughs> there you go. Uh-huh. So, uh, and, you know, and that's also, you know, maybe to kind of segue into the, the conversation around race, I uh, was originally supposed to teach in Seattle. Um, and that didn't work out. And so I ended up in New Jersey. I was born and raised in New Jersey. So I ended up teaching in Trenton living in a, an apartment that was only a couple miles from where like my dad lived, you know? <laughs> uh, and so, so I thought I was like, this is like my backyard. Like I told, I get this, you know, this is, you know, I never said it was going to be easy, but I didn't think I was going to be ready for not just the teaching part of like how I was, if, how I was failing my students to educate them, but also as a white male teaching first grade. So fairly young kids. Um, and being the only white teacher in the school and in a school that there were no other white kids at all, a hundred percent, uh, black. And for me to really experience like, no, yeah, just because you grew up in the town next door does not at all make you ready or feel that you understand just because you're from Jersey. So uh, it was, so my first time also really grappling as an adult in sort of a professional way around race. So, Jay, thinking about that, you know, one thing Mark and I have been touching on and certainly the last two episodes started to get into, like, what does anti-racism work actually look like? And what, you know, is there a sort of a continuum of a journey that a white person goes through and um, and, and, and sort of what counts as meaningful mm. anti-racism work? And so I wonder if we could just hear a yeah. little bit about like what like, what do you think anti-racism sort of means for, for white men? And, and maybe what have your experiences been? Like, what have you tried to do or what are you doing now? Or what are you thinking about in that area? Sure. So I can share some of my, my journey and definitely want it to be not just a story, but also an opportunity for dialogue, you know, so feel free to like jump in and out of conversation. But I, I do think that I am on this journey probably for reasons that are not just uh, for self-interest. I think I kind of put in place certain structural things to make it that I have to continue on this journey. That I think if I would left to sort of my own thoughts and my own, if I was sort of on my my own, I wasn't married and I wasn't living where I'm living now. um, I wonder if I would be on this journey at all. I think I might 
be a person that is willing to learn. So I do think that's part of the stage of the journey is just to learn, like learn what is happening, not just your own experience, but like what are other people's experiences? What's the history behind things and be willing to read things that, um, you know, maybe you weren't taught in school. At least I wasn't taught in my public school. Uh, and, and start to engage in those conversations. But at some point, and I remember reading in one of the classes that I have taken, you know, this journey is kind of similar to the stages of grief. And there's a, there's a real parallel to it. Um, and it really is only to like the end where you kind of like acceptance uh, that there's, as a white man, what is my role to perpetuate racism? What have white men and white people in general in this country over its history have done? Uh, and I think the ultimate part of it is like action. Now that you, you kind of like, you've gone through the different stages, um, you know, at some point, if it doesn't lend itself to action, to change in something, not just yourself, but change in something outside of yourself, I, I can't imagine that things could get better. And I think that's the part that I struggle with is that, you know, how much action am I really doing? And, and I remember another conversation that you and I had, if it's not uncomfortable for me, if I'm actually not experiencing pain in some way, whether the pain is a financial pain, like I am, have to give up something that I once had, or if it's like a emotional pain, like if we don't experience that as white men, are we just sort of just touching the surface of what it means to be anti-racist? And Jay, you know, Mark and I have talked, I mean, Mark just was bringing up the issue of discomfort, but you're using the word, I, why are you saying pain? Like, it's interesting you're saying pain. Well, I think when I am in moments, and it's not all the time, and I would say it's actually not even most of the time, but I'm really thinking about what does it mean to live in a society in which perpetuated sort of both has systemic racism that that is a white male, like what is my role in that? Generally, I don't feel any pain at all. Like I'm not even thinking about it, you know? <laughs> you know uh, but I, I feel like if you really, like if you really truly believe that things need to change, um, I wonder if it's possible if that change doesn't involve some sort of pain, if it's always just comfortable. I just use it as, the, as like another way to say uncomfortable because uncomfortable doesn't sound powerful enough. So, yeah, I think it's worth getting into this for a minute. You're talking a little bit in the hypothetical. So I want to like bring it to the practical. Like, so, and I, there's, this is a judgment-free zone. Maybe it's yeah. not, I don't, it, whatever it is, it is, but you know, we're going to love you no matter what however you answer this question. Uh, are you doing things that cause you discomfort? Well, I would say most of the time, and by like most, I'm like 95 to 98% of the time, I am not consciously thinking about this or mm -hmm. um, digging into being an anti-racist. Mm -hmm. um, and the number honestly might even be higher than that. I mean, when I think about my whole day, you know, if I think about it a couple of times a week, I mean, it's like, that might be less than even 1%. Mm -hmm. um, so the things that I um, have done that I wouldn't probably do on my own, but um, 
but ended up being great were some of the courses I did with my wife, with Jenny, um, you know, where we took a, you know, a racial healing um, sort of a couple month long course. Uh, and that was uncomfortable for me. I mean, it just that mm-hmm. sort of like not not my thing. Uh, mm-hmm. But that's that's something. And I think that's something that I think we'll kind of continue to do. And 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 I say structural. Like I think if I weren't with Jenny, I'm not sure if I would have done that on my own. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's that's something. Um, I think a, this is definitely not pain, and I wouldn't even put put it in the realm of discomfort. But I do think it's important that we are active. In doing things. So politically here in Georgia, you know, mm-hmm. we are actually, this feels kind of great because I can, I, you know, I, I used to run a nonprofit where I always felt like I couldn't like be very political <laughs> and say like, uh, like sort of like my, my political views. Um, but we're going to fight really hard to get Stacey Abrams elected mm-hmm. as governor. I think um, my family and I um, were very active in the last presidential election to get Georgia to vote Democratic and and have two Democratic senators. And I think that uh, that is time, that is money that we'll put into and that we'll continue to do. So being politically active is is just another way for us to, for me at least, to feel like we're doing something. But I don't quite know if that's in the discomfort. Um, The reality is outside of these courses, um, I rarely put myself in, in sort of uncomfortable situations around race. Maybe during this conversation, we might get in, we might be able to do that a little bit. But generally speaking, it doesn't happen very often. You know, what I've been thinking about is for myself, for others that I'm interacting with, is just kind of pose this question of like, what could you step into? Mm-hmm. What, you know, it could be there's so many different things that would, you know, be on that little bit of edge of discomfort and just kind of see what that would be like. And uh, we, you could join us in our, uh, you know, commitments to each other. Sure. We will take good notes about it and remind you what you said. Yeah. Well, there's a couple of things that, that, that come up as you're talking. I, um, and this is like, I think a, a place as like, a, you know, there's three white guys on this podcast right now. I tend to give myself pats on the back for doing certain things that really may not actually mean much of anything at all. And I'll start back with like the whole story. Like we've now lived in Atlanta, you know, originally from, from Jersey for the last 16 plus years. And when I came down here, which Georgia was not a state in which I was particularly excited to go to, but when we came down here, visited Atlanta, um, really felt like, yeah, this is, it's progressive. I mean, I see rainbow flags uh, in this uh, small uh, little sort of node called Decatur, a little city. It's very walkable. I was like, this is, I, this, this, I can, this could be home. Um, and then I saw in the middle of this very progressive little town, a monument uh, that said CSA on the bottom of it. And I honestly did not know what the hell that meant. I was like, what is this thing doing in public, public land? And what is CSA? And then when I was told what stands for the Confederate States of America, my first Mm. thought was, how can that be legal? Mm. So 16 years. uh, And, you know, I would share that story with folks as like this newcomer, this Yankee coming down. And 
and, and you know, and usually the people I'm talking to are whites and probably also from Decatur. Um, that mommy only came down like six months ago. Mm-hmm. Um, and not because of anything I did. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I wonder, like, you know, I would tell the story, but I didn't actually do anything about taking mm-hmm. that monument down. It's been there for, I don't know, 80 years. Mm-hmm. Um, but during the time I was here, it only came down relatively recently. So that's part of this idea of like, I would talk about like this thing that was jarring and uncomfortable and I would share that, but I actually wouldn't do much about it, if anything. Mm-hmm. So that's where I kind of give myself a pat on the back. It's like, yeah, I, I acknowledge something, but then I didn't do much about it. Mm-hmm. Jason, you said a few minutes ago, something that really resonated with me as I think about it, it's certainly true of me. You said something like, you know, most of the time, I'm not consciously thinking about this and, yeah. and digging into anti-racism. And you were like, you know, maybe 95 to 98%. And then you're like, well, actually probably it's higher than that. Um, I think that's true for me. And I think we might argue that, especially in America, if you're black, brown, indigenous, they're thinking about racism, forced to think about racism because of our society, you know, I don't know what the percentage is. Maybe it's flipped, right? Maybe it's 98% of the time they are, or certainly. So I think I'm positing that as a white person in a society built for white people, we probably can't get away from the fact that you naturally, you consciously may not be thinking about it most of the time. Is that a problem? Is that a barrier that will forever mean that we don't really fully get it? or we won't yep. be just uncomfortable enough? Or is that like, no, that's, that's, you know, the fish swimming in the water. Sure. But as long as we're, as long as we are aware of it and doing some stuff when we need, then we can move forward. Uh, so I can, I can share a couple of years ago. Um, I was part of this group called leadership Atlanta every year. There's a group of people you know, usually business leaders, nonprofit, political folks who are selected into the Leadership Atlanta class. And one of the days is called to race. Maybe it's called race day, could be racial awareness. But how it, it, it resonates is that for just a very small moment of time, basically six hours, maybe even less than that, there's an exercise which I can't really describe it because, you know, who knows who will listen to this podcast, maybe future folks who go through this. Um, but it really was the first time that it flipped that, this idea of like, if you were white, you were meant to confront racism directly. Uh, and if you're black or brown, you kind of were able to, you weren't in a situation which you had to feel that being black or brown was a barrier. And, and that was a really powerful six hours And the entire, I mean, it was very, I mean, people were crying. I mean, it was very powerful. You, you know, part of it is like, you didn't quite know what was going on as white people. Uh, and so it was uh, a very immersive experience. And then the real takeaway from that was at the end of it, um, and there was a debrief and there was sort of like a, a make whole of this pretty, traumatic experience for at least white people um, was like, you felt uncomfortable for like maybe four to six hours. That's what it feels like for brown and black people every day. 
And so like the idea of like just being very exhausted about racism um, is something that I just kind of remember um, from that experience. And I think that's true. Like this idea that we white men uh, can go through most of our week without feeling this sort of burden and, and heaviness that for just a, one exercise, I felt for a couple hours and I was completely like wiped out, um, was just an experience I take with me. Um, that kind of speaks to the idea of like, yeah, we, we really don't have to deal with racism very often. And if we did, um, it's just exhausting. Hmm. And the experience you're describing is, I mean, probably unlike one I've ever had. It, it, well, it was definitely one unlike I've ever had. It's meant to, I think if you share too much about it, 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 it yeah. potentially ruins Don't the give away the secrets. Yes. yes. Uh, but, but I will say that it was, and, and the great thing about this Leadership Atlanta thing is like that it, part of it has been the same for like 20 years, that exact same experience. And so there is a, a cohort of leaders here in Atlanta, like the current mayor of Atlanta was in my leadership Atlanta class. And um, as well as a bunch of other folks like have had this shared experience. And I, and the goal of leadership Atlanta really was not about this networking, which kind of was the reason why I thought this would be great. It's like, oh, I'm gonna meet a bunch of people and help me with this nonprofit. Really, it was about how can we start to really think about race in Atlanta and, and, um, and ensure that the people in power uh, particularly white people in power, uh, whether it's business or others, can have this shared experience. So at least you have that as a common denominator with every other Leadership Atlanta class. Yeah. As I'm listening to your experience, it sounds like, Mark, your question about the role of discomfort. So here's an experience that seemed to be there, right? Like I got, I had discomfort. Now, is this a catalytic experience that like, okay, I've checked that off. My understanding of my racial identity has moved forward mm -hmm. and now I've done the discomfort thing or is discomfort a, an ongoing element? And if we're not hitting that somehow, it's like the runner who isn't continually improving their minutes per mile. How much is discomfort if it's central? Is it something that then gets us to a place where we have greater understanding or we constantly need to be exposed to that? I'm thinking about our maleness and I'm, I'm thinking about the idea of awareness and that hmm, I'm trying to use a good metaphor. You know, I think about being a parent a lot. Um, we're all parents of children. And, uh, you know, I have two teenage boys and, you know, they create a lot of opportunity for me to reflect on my actions. And over time, I would say I have grown in my awareness of how I interact with them. And I think about it when I'm with them, when I'm not with them, like it's, it's now with me because like, I'm just much more aware of how I think about parenting. Maybe another example is um, I'm really aware of how I show up as a man or how I have showed up as a man and how I want to show up as a man in my relationship with women, especially my wife. 
So these are examples of things that, well, maybe I have, you know, a lot of opportunity to work on them because they are in some of my daily life. But like I have changed in terms of my awareness of what it like, what it is to be a man, how men interact and, and with women or how I as a man interact with women, what it is to be a parent, how to how to interact as a parent or how I do interact with a parent with children. And so I just wonder like this issue of being a white man and being shut off, you know, uh, not being aware of how that impacts us. Well, why is that any different? Why can't we bring a level of intention and awareness so that we are more aware more often of how our whiteness and maleness is showing up both in terms of privilege, power, and also in how interacting with others and so on. I know that we're, we're probably not at the place where we talk about intentions that we want to set for ourselves, but I did listen to your last podcast and probably for the first time I was bought into the need of mindfulness that I have heard and I've read about it. And there's things that have happened in my life, which could be called mindful practices, but I kind of like just went along because, you know, either my wife was doing it or, you know, like, or it just seemed like, yeah, it seems like a, like a cool thing to do. Um, but I think you're right, Mark, um, that having the experience, the exposure, the learning, the, um, the mindset, maybe shift or change. Um, I think it has to be coupled with whatever is your version of mindfulness, because at least for me, it just evaporates. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I think that is the part that it really stuck with me from your last uh, podcast was this idea of like, actually all this stuff really, it's not like it's bad to do this course that I just did, or it wasn't, um, transformational, but it was transformational that, you know, if I was like a sort of a, 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 like a piece of metal that was transformed, you know, into this really cool shape after this course, well, without mindfulness, I just kind of revert back to my original shape eventually, Mm -hmm. you know, and I feel like that, that, that element of mindfulness is needed for me to maintain the sort of new shape that I'm looking for. The joke in, you know, in my organization is focused on mindfulness in schools and education systems. And uh, so I have an opportunity to think about it and talk about it a lot. <clears throat> and I make a joke a lot. I have a tagline that no one else in my organization has bought into because I guess they don't, it's not that they don't believe it. They just don't think it's a good tagline. <laughs> and I always say mindfulness, it's foundational, it's transformational. And I think the trend, like I do believe a mindfulness practice applied, pointed at something like anti-racism can be transformational and really enhance and supercharge the type of changes someone might be looking to make, the the type of transformation they're looking to uh, go through. And I will also name, I don't think it's de facto that way, meaning it doesn't need to be transformational. In fact, you could point mindfulness at some pretty bad things too. No, not to leave read out because I, I'm <laughs> also uh, 
you know, I also feel like I have more of an affinity to like how Reed feels about mindfulness than maybe Mark in terms of it's, it feels a little kind of strange and it's kind of feels a little hokey maybe. And it's not like natural and it's, you know, it's like uh, meditate. I don't know. It doesn't, but I, so what I guess um, I would put a plug in uh, for Reed and I, even maybe even more so than Mark and I though. Uh, Mark, I would love to get your, your input is like what, I mean, mindfulness doesn't have to be, can be whatever it, it, we want it to be. And I think it doesn't need to be maybe how the common perception of mindfulness practices are. And let's kind of like maybe explore like ways that are both um, authentic for us and maybe kind of like, let's go of the little bit of like uh, this uh, stereotype of like, you know, we're going to just going to like sit on the floor and meditate. <laughs> I bring up code switch every time and Mark brings up mindfulness. Um, and so, <laughs> I, so I don't, but Jason, to your point, your idea of like, what is mindfulness for you? So I don't want to say that mindfulness isn't mindfulness like mm-hmm. that. I, I, I hear, and, I, and I'm understanding and I'm learning from what you're saying, Mark, but I, Back to your analogy, Jason, about the piece of metal that gets bent, what's going to keep it from going back to its original shape? I think this podcast, this this conversation, this regular conversation with Mark and with some other people like yourself is one of the things that is hopefully helping to shape me into a better person, but also keep me there. And so I know that's that's not what you're talking about, Mark, when you're saying like how mindfulness can be a uh, part of um, getting better at anti-racism or anti-sexism or whatever. But for me, like the regularity and the accountability of these discussions are a way that keep me hopefully bending in the right direction and help hold me there when otherwise I might start to uh, relax back to an easier state. I don't think that's in conflict with anything I said in any way. I would certainly support that. What you just said. Yeah. Uh, can I can I pose something as a wrap up question? Reed, is that okay? Of course. And of course, I will slide into mindfulness. So here you go. <clears throat> One definition of mindfulness that I use is IAAAE, intention, attention. So I have an intention to put my attention somewhere with a mindful attitude, meaning like, you know, curious, kind, non judgmental. I'm kind of noticing what's happening, which brings awareness. So intention, attention, attitude, awareness. And then with that awareness, using that awareness for ethical action. Hmm. And so maybe just playing with that idea and going back to intention, we could all just state an intention, you know, for our time apart until we meet again. Why don't you go first? Yeah, I think I think I'm going to go with the school committee thing right now for a little bit or that community, I'm going to have a bunch of different meetings. Like there's a good number of meetings and stuff going on in the next month. And so maybe my intention, there probably is opportunity for me to 
have the intention of really trying to understand what someone else is experiencing to see, especially someone who's more marginalized and, um, or who is marginalized. And I, and I want to kind of experience as much as I can, what that might be like in those moments for them and see how that might shift how I behave myself. Um, I'll go next. And then Jason, you got to have one since you're coming back next time. Um, This conversation around discomfort and where that shows up, I'm going to try to be more uh, intentionally aware. I'm pulling in all these things, awareness, attention, intention. Um, I know I'm going to have a couple different interactions and work uh, with some Mm -hmm. colleagues of color in the coming weeks. And I think I want to make sure I'm being a little more aware of where and where not I'm allowing discomfort in my interactions with them to come up um, and how that impacts the way I'm working with them. Because I think there may be things I'm doing, saying, or acting because I don't, I don't want to feel discomfort. I think I have maybe not been intentional enough in uh, being aware. So I'm that sounds a little bit like a jumbled mess, but I think um, being a little more self-aware as I am in interactions with colleagues, particular colleagues of color, and where discomfort may or may not be coming up and what I'm doing to either avoid or invite that. Jason. So, um, so I have like two words or two things, um, that I'm going to think about, like what I'm going to learn and what I'm going to do. Um, and what I want to learn more about, um, uh, is here in Georgia, there, are, there's a lot of politics, you know, CRT, um, there's um, sort of don't say gay mm-hmm. um, uh, bills that are coming up. And, you know, and, and so I want to learn more because I, I, I feel like I only have the surface level, like, you know, soundbite of it. And I really need to dig into it because I want to, and this goes into the do part of it, I want to do something about that and, and, and see what I can do to see that those laws are not passed, or if they are passed, they are passed in a way that is not as detrimental or damaging as it could be. Uh, and the kind of the do part about it, that I, but what I can do right now, because that's a kind of a longer term that, that could take months, um, is that I, I have actually never tried to read things and think about it and from like, uh, how has it impacted me? Like, how do I feel about mm. it? You know? And so, uh, so that's sort of like how I'm taking mindfulness for at least next week is as I'm reading about these things, like, how does it make my body feel? How am I feeling mm-hmm. about it? How do I think others are going to impact instead mm-hmm. of just sort of reading as like a scholar? You nice. know? <laughs> so that's my next week intention is to like, while I'm learning about these bills that are being in the mm. past or, or up for a vote, um, think about how it makes me feel and how it makes others feel. Um, so that, that would be a new thing for me. I've never done it before. Love that. And you know, you don't need me to love it, but I'm just saying I do. Thank you. We all need some affirmation. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, I love, I mean, 
Well, I, I am so excited to hear how that goes. And, and it makes me feel really, I'm going to pat myself on the back in the sense of, and reads, just like if, if this conversation and this podcast got you to change the way you approach reading and thinking about the, like, I think that's huge. And, and that, thank you. No, thank you. And read good job for you too. Thank I'm curious how you're. Yeah. I, I don't expect accolades from you, Mark. Um, <laughs> so, all right, guys. Well, this is great. We, we have committed our other, our other uh, intention is that we're going to get back together again. So nice. we'll yes. do that. And I look forward to that between now and then Jason, thanks so much for no, giving up you. part of your afternoon for today. Really enjoyed learning yeah. from you today. Yeah. Thank you, Reed. And thank you, Mark. Yeah. Um, all right, guys, have a good one. You too. All Take right. care, everyone. Thanks, guys. Bye. 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 Thank you for listening to the 3 to 10 Project. You can find all episodes on our website, and through a number of streaming apps, including Spotify, Google Podcasts, Radio Public, Breaker, and Pocket Casts. The Code Switch podcast we referenced is entitled, Is It Time to Say RIP to POC? Originally broadcast on Code Switch on September 30th, 2020. Do you have feedback or ideas for us to engage with? You can email Read directly at readdyer one that's the numeral one, at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. And if you think these conversations could be valuable to others, please pass the podcast link along. And finally, thanks as always to Random Chiz for our Season 2 theme music.